This audio recording is presented by Jews for Judaism. We are dedicated to keeping Jews Jewish. www.jewsforjudaism.ca So the early followers of Jesus needed to come up with a messianic concept, as I said last week, that was both worthwhile and invisible. They needed to explain away the death of Jesus in a way that seemed worthy and beneficial and worthwhile and noble and yet had to be an explanation that couldn't be objectively checked and verified. And as I mentioned, the essential shift in the messianic concept was from a king who would rule at a time when the world was transformed into a place of peace and harmony and belief in God to someone who comes to be a sacrifice to die for the sins of the world. This was the new concept introduced by the followers of Jesus. And we see this in your source sheets in the very beginning of the book of Matthew. This is from the Greek Testament, chapter 1, verse 21, at the naming of Jesus. The Gospel says that this woman shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, which is the English form of what might have been Yehoshua back then. And that word means salvation. And why was he called Yeshua or Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. That his function will be to save people from their sins. We see this really throughout the entire Greek Testament. For example, in the first book of Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is the principal message of the Christian Bible. That Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. What's interesting is that what Christianity ultimately did was to make an error by transforming the concept of Mashiach to the concept of Moshiach. And we'll see that it's based upon a misunderstanding of what Moshiach is. But we have two words in Hebrew. We have the word Mashiach, anointed one, right, the Mashiach. And we have the word Moshiach, which means a savior. And the words sound very similar. And what Christianity did was, to a certain extent, focus on Jesus as savior, rather than as anointed one, rather than as Messiah, because Jesus was never anointed as king. He never ruled. He never functioned as an anointed king. So the focus in Christianity was on the idea of Jesus as Savior. And the two words are very similar, similar at least in Hebrew, Mashiach and Moshiach. But what's fascinating is that it's based upon a misunderstanding of what the idea of salvation is in Judaism. Just turn to the next page for a second. And I have a number of references throughout the Bible of the word salvation. Now, in Hebrew, this word salvation, savior, to save, to be saved, has dozens of forms. If you look in a concordance to the Bible, you might have the word lehoshia, hoshienu, moshia, yeshuatenu. There are many, many forms of the word. They all focus on this concept of salvation, of saving, of saved, to be saved. The first reference is in the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verse 30, 
where at the splitting of the Red Sea, it says that the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. Continuing that same story in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, the Jewish people sing to God, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The Jewish people refer to God at the splitting of the Red Sea as their Savior. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22, the Bible speaks about a woman who's attacked in the field. In verse 27, the man found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was no one to save her. In the book of Judges, throughout the entire book of Judges, this word comes up. In chapter 6, verse 14, we're talking about Gideon, who was chosen. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? In the first book of Samuel, chapter 7, verse 8, And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 10, But as for you, have no fear, my servant Jacob, says the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for I am going to save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And finally, on the bottom, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 19, I will deal with all your oppressors at that time, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. We see, and really there are hundreds of examples that really say the same thing, that the idea of salvation in the Jewish Bible is never referring to people being saved from their sins. The idea of salvation in the Hebrew Bible refers to people being rescued from political or physical danger. Throughout the Bible, saviors rise up to save the Jewish people from their enemies, and this is the Jewish concept of salvation and of being saved. Christianity really refocuses and changes the concept of salvation to one of being redeemed from sin. And this is an application or a use of the word salvation which is completely foreign to the Hebrew Bible. It's basically an example, and again we're going to see this throughout the class, that on every single major theological issue, Christianity and Judaism differ. We differ on the concept of what the Messiah is supposed to do. We differ here on the idea of salvation. We will differ tonight, we'll see, on the whole concept of atonement from sin. Every single issue we will examine, we will show that Christianity and Judaism are different. We do not have the same basic premises. And what we're doing by this is simply undermining the major claim made by missionaries today, which is that Judaism and Christianity are not mutually exclusive. The major claim made by missionaries is that you can be a good Jew who embraces Christianity and you're doing nothing antithetical to Judaism because they say all of Christianity is based upon the Hebrew Bible. So again, our focus in this class is to demonstrate that Christian teachings are not based upon what the Jewish Bible says, really come from elsewhere. So we have this Christian idea of the Messiah really being one who saves from sin. If you just go back to your first sheet for a second, toward the bottom of the page, I just want to share with you two other examples, and this will bring you back to last week's class. Two other examples of where Christians try to demonstrate that this concept of the Messiah is found in the Hebrew Bible. If you look in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 26, this is from the Christian Bible, in a very famous passage, 
the writer says, and so all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So what you see in the book of Romans is that when this redeemer, deliverer comes, what will be his job? His job will be to banish ungodliness, to get rid of sinfulness in Jacob among the Jewish people. And the claim here is that this concept is not just one invented lately at a, at a late stage by uh, New Testament writers, but they're quoting here a verse from the Jewish Bible. As it is written, in the book of Romans, it is quoting a, bo- a verse from the book of Isaiah. When we examine, however, this verse from the book of Isaiah, we'll see that it was done a tremendous amount of violence. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 20 says something very, very different. And to Zion he will come as a redeemer. So in the book of Isaiah he's coming to Zion, not out of Zion. But more importantly, this redeemer comes to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, says the Lord. In the book of Romans, this redeemer comes for the purpose of changing ungodly people into good godly people. He's there for the purpose of saving people from their sins. So in the book of Romans, the Messiah fulfills this Christian role of saving people from their sins, taking them out of their ungodliness. In the book of Isaiah, we're told, who does the Messiah come to? The Messiah comes to people who on their own have already turned from sin. They they have themselves repented and changed from their sinful ways, and then the Messiah comes to a great extent as a reward. This is a very, very standard Jewish teaching that the Messiah will come when the Jewish people get their act together, when the Jewish people turn to God. Then God will send the Messiah as a cap-off to the history. We see the same kind of technique used in the book of Hebrews, also from the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, the writer makes reference allegedly to a verse in the Hebrew Bible. He says in Hebrews 10, verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, and obviously here it's using the word Christ as a name, right? It really should say, when the Christ, or the Messiah. Consequently, when the Messiah, when the Christ came into the world, he said, quote, you notice that in this version of the New Testament, this is in quotation marks. He said, quote, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offerings and in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then if you skip to verse ten, it spells out who this body that was prepared was. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the book of Hebrews here is making reference to a verse in the Hebrew Bible, a verse from the book of Psalms, and allegedly this verse is telling us that God did not desire our sacrifices, but he prepared instead the body of the Messiah who will take the place of those sacrifices. Now, if we check the reference in the book of Psalms from the Hebrew Bible, chapter 40, verse, in the, in the Hebrew text it's verse 7, in the English text it's verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. There's no reference in the Hebrew Bible to a body that was prepared. So simply by manipulating the text, by to a great extent raping the text here, violating the text, the New Testament is able to quote-unquote prove its point. 
because it has no fidelity to the Hebrew Bible. There's no fidelity to what the Bible actually says. Now, how do missionaries present this teaching in real life? This, you should know, is probably the central technique, the central tactic used by missionaries today. Very few missionaries will approach Jews and engage in a discussion about the Messiah. Many missionaries realize that to most Jewish people, the Messiah is not a very, very relevant topic in their lives. And usually the point of contact, usually the discussion that comes up first is the whole concept of how we live our lives. Are we living properly? Can we be better people? How do we atone for our sins? How do we deal with the mistakes that we've made? This is usually the first point of contact between Christians and Jews. And I've quoted for you here a typical tract that's used by missionaries. This is actually the first Christian missionary pamphlet I've ever, I ever saw in my life. It's by someone named B. Johnson. It's called Israel Think. It's in the middle of the page. And he writes the following. And this is literally an argument, an argument repeated in hundreds and hundreds of missionary pamphlets, tracts, booklets, and in verbal discussions. Since you, obviously speaking to Jewish people here, since you no longer observe the sacrificial system commanded by God and declared to you by Moses, where in the scripture do you find justification for so doing? They're saying that biblically, when Jewish people sinned, the way they were able to atone for their sins was by offering sacrifices. And the argument here is, why aren't we bringing these sacrifices today? If it was necessary for Israel to make a blood atonement for sin in the Mosaic dispensation, and even up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, why have you ceased to bring your offering before God's altar? Is it because you no longer believe you need a sin offering? You have no, you have no blood atonement at all. And now he quotes, And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. That means without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Unquote. For, again, quote, it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. And the reference here is in the Jewish Bible, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Therefore, he concludes, your sins are unatoned for and your soul stands condemned before a holy God. Now, many missionaries will not be so blunt and so crass, but this really boils down the missionary argument to its essential element. The basic point they're making is that the Hebrew Bible requires Jewish people to bring a blood sacrifice to atone for their sins. And we today, as Jews living after the destruction of the temple, do not bring those sacrifices, and therefore we are without atonement for our sins. And they're saying that they have an alternative for us. They have an answer to this great problem, that Jesus died for our sins, and therefore we have a sacrifice that's been offered on our behalf. Now, what we want to do tonight is simply examine the credibility of this argument. Is it true that in the Jewish Bible, the only way people could atone for their sins was through bringing a blood sacrifice? Because this is a missionary claim. The missionary claim is that the death of Jesus as the Messiah is not a new invention of the New Testament. Remember what their technique is. They're trying to show that this is what the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible requires of us. It's not simply a new invention of Johnny-come-lately Christians. The one thing that's very interesting here is that 
if you were asked to ask a Christian missionary, and I've done this hundreds of times, ask a Christian missionary, where in the Bible does it say that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness? Because that's a very direct and clear statement. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Ask any missionary where that's stated, and they will quote Leviticus 17.11 as this B. Johnson does in this paragraph. In reality, that concept is found nowhere in the Jewish Bible. The Jewish Bible never says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The Jewish Bible does say it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. That's the second quote that he brings down. But you'll see that he essentially runs these two quotes together. And he attributes both of them to the Hebrew Bible, Leviticus chapter 17. Let's just look for a second at what Leviticus 17.11 actually says. The book of Leviticus in the Hebrew Bible, chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. Does anyone, by the way, notice here whether it says that blood is the only thing that makes an atonement? Does it say here blood is the atonement or an atonement? Right, it's saying that blood makes an atonement. At this point, do we know that there are other ways of making atonement? There may or may not be. But the text does not say that it is the blood and nothing else that makes atonement. You see, here it's a little bit vague. The New Testament, though, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 22, is fairly clear. The book of Hebrews from the Christian Bible says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. So we have here a very clear Christian teaching. There's no doubt about this. Christians believe that without the shedding of blood you cannot be forgiven for your sins. The question for us to look at is, is that consistent with the Hebrew Bible? Does the Tanakh, does our Jewish Bible tell us without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness for sins? So we need to look, and just turn to page 3 for this, at the source that's used by the Christian missionary. This is the book of Leviticus, chapter 17. And I want you to remember a biblical principle that I've stated before, but it will be crucial during the rest of the course. Any principle theological claim that's made, if you want to really make a strong case for it, you should be able to back it up with proofs that are clear and consistent. That is to say that you should have not just one verse in the Bible that teaches what you want to say. For example, the Jewish concept of the Messiah, we don't find one verse hidden somewhere and we hang our entire case for the Jewish Messiah on one verse. We saw that it was a case that was built upon dozens and dozens of verses that were consistently found throughout the entire Bible. And secondly, each of the verses that we looked at was very clear. You didn't have to sit and wonder whether or not the passage was really speaking about an anointed king. It says it straight out. So any time we develop a theological concept, we want our sources that are clear We want sources that you don't have to scratch your head to figure out whether or not they're really saying what you want them to say. And we don't just want them to be clear, but we want them to be consistent. We want more than one reference if it's a central concept in the Bible. When the Bible, for example, says that we are not allowed to worship idols, it doesn't say it once. The Bible teaches this dozens and dozens and dozens of times because it's an important theological concept The Bible is clear and consistent. 
When the Bible says that it is important for us as Jews to observe the Sabbath, it doesn't say it once. It says it clearly many, many, many times. When the Bible says that we are to remember that we were slaves in Egypt, it's an important concept. It's said clearly and consistently. So we want to examine this source in Leviticus 17 because unfortunately from the Christian point of view, this is their only source. There are no other passages in the Bible that missionaries will refer to. So their entire case essentially hangs on this one verse, which is in itself a weakness. You would hope that if this was a clear teaching of the Bible, the Bible would say many times that you need to have blood to atone for your sins. So number one, we don't have a consistent presentation. But number two, is this clear? Is Leviticus 17.11 clearly teaching you that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness? And we want to go through a little bit of an exercise. We want to read this passage in context. This is one of the things we learned last week. Are Christians quoting here out of context? They will quote Leviticus 17.11. You'll, you'll remember, you'll rarely hear from a missionary the citation of an entire chapter. They'll rarely say, yes, my concept is developed throughout the 17th chapter of Leviticus. They will almost invariably refer you to a pinpoint verse. That's one of the sad parts of the Christian position that it's based upon an isolated verse, not an entire development in the chapter. So here in Leviticus 17, let's read the surrounding verses. And I want you to keep in mind the following question. Make believe you're back in 10th grade and you're being given an assignment by your teacher. Give this paragraph a title. Give this paragraph a title. Let's read it together. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the aliens who reside among them eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut that person off from the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For his life, it is the blood that makes atonement. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, nor shall any alien who resides among you eat blood. And any one of the people of Israel or of the aliens who reside among them who hunts down an animal or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature, its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So what is the title we would give to this passage here? The biblical prohibition against drinking blood. Okay? We would not say that the major focus of this passage is the principles of atonement. And this is crucial. The Christian bases their entire case on this verse. That would lead you to believe that if you were to look at more than verse 17, 11, right? They want you to look at chapter 17, verse 11. They lead you to think that if you look at the whole chapter, the theme of that chapter is how we atone for our sins. And now they've given you the key verse in the chapter. That's not the case. Chapter 17 does not deal with the principles of atonement at all. Where would you think you would find the principles of atonement? That would be in Leviticus chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, where the Bible gives you all of the laws of how to bring sacrifices. So in the first five or six chapters of Leviticus, the Bible gives you in very clear and, 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 and orderly fashion all the different sacrifices and how you bring them. By the time you get to Leviticus chapter 17, the Bible is no longer speaking about how to offer sacrifices. It's speaking about how not to offer sacrifices. It says, for example, you're not allowed to bring a sacrifice outside the temple precinct. 
It says you can't eat the blood of an animal. Here in this chapter is telling you what you shouldn't do. And yet the missionary bases their entire theology on this isolated verse. Again, though, the question is, does this verse teach you that you may only receive atonement from blood? What is the verse actually saying? It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. What it's saying here is that when you bring a sacrifice, what part of the animal affects the atonement? Is it the eyeballs on the altar? Is it the hair of the animal? Is it maybe its uh, spinal cord that's put up on the altar? Is it the tongue? The kidneys? The nose? So the Bible says the part of the animal that affects atonement is the blood. Because the blood is the life force of the animal. And that's what the Bible is saying here. The Bible is saying when you bring a sacrifice, it's the blood of the animal that affects the atonement because the blood is the life force of the animal. And that's why we're not allowed to drink the blood. Because the blood is symbolic of the life of the animal, we're told you can't drink the blood. And the statement about the fact that the blood affects atonement on the altar is parenthetical. It's essentially there to give you part of the reason for why we don't drink the blood. Why? Because the blood, as the life force, was offered on the altar to atone for our sins. This passage is not saying that the only way you can atone for your sins is through bringing blood. It's simply saying when you bring an animal, what part of the animal affects the atonement? The blood does. And this is not saying that there is no other way of bringing atonement. There may be other ways of bringing atonement. For example, the Bible may say that bringing money, charity, is an atonement for sin. There may be many other things in the Bible that affect atonement. This is simply focusing on when you bring a sacrifice, it's the blood of the animal that affects the atonement, not any other part of the animal. Let's take, for example, the missionary position and let's assume for argument's sake that it's true. What missionaries would have us believe is that in the Bible there was a simple remedy for sin. The missionary position essentially feels that throughout the Bible there was an institution called sacrifices and when a person committed a sin they would bring a sacrifice. Now one of the misconceptions of missionary Christianity is their feeling that most of the sacrifices or all of the sacrifices brought in temple times were for sin. And the truth of the matter is that there were many, many kinds of sacrifices in the Bible and most of them were not for sin. There were sacrifices that were brought, for example, when you felt close to God. As a matter of fact, in the beginning of the Bible, when Abraham, when Noah, when the biblical patriarchs bring sacrifices, it's not for, the, for sins. It's saying that they felt that they had a close relationship to God because of a certain event, and therefore they brought a sacrifice as a way of demonstrating their closeness to God. And throughout the book of Leviticus, we have many different kinds of sacrifices. We have a burnt offering, the Korban Ola, we have the Shlamim, the peace offering. We have many kinds of sacrifices for different festivals, different occasions, one of the sacrifices was a sin offering. One was a sin offering. 
the missionary would have us believe that when a person committed a sin in the times of the Bible, they brought a sin offering. It seems simple enough. You commit a sin, you bring a sacrifice. That's what Mr. Johnson would have us believe. That in the olden days, before Jesus, you had a remedy for sins. You brought a sacrifice. The reality is that that's not what happened. In the Bible, sacrifices were not brought for any kind of sin that was committed. They were only brought for unintentional sins. If you look here at Leviticus chapter 4, which is a delineation of the laws of the sin offerings, you'll notice that the one refrain that comes up, and I didn't quote the whole chapter, is that when you sin unintentionally, you'll bring this korban chatat, the sin offering. I want to clarify what it means to sin unintentionally. There are essentially three kinds of actions in biblical Judaism. One is an action where you're out of your own control. If someone puts a gun to your head and says, uh, cook a meal on Shabbat, that's not considered a crime or a sin. We call that ones. And the Talmud says, ones rachmana patre, you're not culpable for a situation where you're out of control. If you do something and you're not in control, then you are not required to bring a sacrifice. An unintentional mistake is when, for example, you didn't know that today was Shabbat. You thought it was Thursday. Right? You thought it was Thursday and, oh, look at that, I cooked a meal on Thursday. Right? So then you find out later it was really Saturday. So that was unintentional. You bring a sacrifice. Or it was Shabbat. You knew it was Saturday. But you weren't in school that day when you learned in school that you couldn't cook on Shabbat. You weren't there that day. So you didn't know you couldn't cook, so you knew it was Shabbat, but you cooked and you didn't know you couldn't cook, so then you find out afterwards that you weren't allowed to cook, you brought a sacrifice, unintentional sin. But these are cases where it was not a rebellion against God. In a case where you knew it was Shabbat, and you knew you weren't supposed to cook, and you cooked anyway, you don't bring a sacrifice in that case. There was no sacrifice brought for an intentional sin. No sacrifices for intentional sins. A second problem. Let's take the missionary position at its word. Let's assume that the missionary position is correct. That you need to bring a sacrifice to atone for sins. Let's say that was correct. What happens in the times of the Bible if you're very poor? What was normally brought as a sacrifice? A cow, a goat, a bull, a ram... Now, what if you were destitute? Let's say you were very poor and you couldn't afford You couldn't uh, afford to buy an animal. Does it make sense to say that God would set up a system of atonement that was inaccessible to poor people? I mean, it, it really goes against our grain to imagine God, a merciful God, setting up a system of atonement where he says, well, if you're poor, that's just tough. Right? I'm only giving this system to people that make a nice living. And if you don't make a good living, to hell with you. It doesn't make much sense. And this is not just my question as a modern liberal person. The Bible asks this question. The Bible itself says, okay, we have this system of sacrifices, but what do we do with the poor person? So on the bottom of the page, Leviticus chapter 5, the Bible raises the issue. But if you cannot afford a sheep, you shall bring to the Lord as your penalty for the sin that you have committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So here, you can well imagine that it's much cheaper to buy a pigeon than it is to buy a sheep. 
And there you fulfilled your requirement for having blood on the altar, right? Because the birds have blood as well. But down on verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11. But what if you can't afford two turtle doves or two pigeons? You're really in bad shape. You really hit hard times. You're living in Toronto during the recession. And you can't afford even two turtle doves or two pigeons. So what happens then? Is there no recourse? Because didn't the Bible say, according to the missionaries, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness? So the Bible says, in that case, you shall bring as your offering for the sin that you've committed one-tenth of an ephah of choice flour for a sin offering. So here, the Bible says that the person that's destitute has recourse to bringing a handful of flour. So we see that the whole Christian contention that blood is an absolute requirement is completely baseless. We see, even if there's one, there are many exceptions, but we've seen here one clear exception that blood was not an absolute requirement. The poor person brought fine flour. Now let's go over to a, sec- a similar problem. What happens to people who may be wealthy but don't live at a time when there's a temple? That's our situation today. If the Bible required people to bring sacrifices and the Bible says you can't bring sacrifices where there's no temple, what do people do when there's no temple? So the Christian argument is that the rabbis invented various replacements for the sacrifices after the temple was destroyed in the year 70. This is the the standard Christianary line is that rabbinic Judaism invented an entire system of rabbinic alternatives to sacrifices. For example, prayers or giving charity, etc., good deeds. And the missionary claim is that after the temple was destroyed in the year 70, the rabbis were left with no alternative. They had to come up with some replacements for the sacrifices. Our response is that this is not a late rabbinic invention around the year 70. Our response is that this problem was already raised in the year 1000 BCE. At the time when the first temple was being built already, this problem was being raised. Because it wasn't just in the year 70 that the Jewish people were bereft of a temple. After the first temple was destroyed in the year 586, they also had no temple for at least 70 years. So what did the Jewish people do after the first temple was destroyed? They're saying that, okay, after the second temple was destroyed, they had Jesus. But what did the Jewish people do in 586 when the first temple was destroyed? What recourse did they have? According to the missionary position, they had no recourse. There was nothing they could do to atone for their sins. There was no temple, no sacrifices, no blood. They're left with nothing. Obviously, that's been, we, we can't assume that God would leave the Jewish people with no recourse to atone for their sins. It's not imaginable to have a God who leaves people up in the air with no way of atoning for their sins. So King Solomon, in the first book of Kings, chapter 8, and this is repeated almost verbatim in the second book of Chronicles, chapter 6, gives one of the most moving soliloquies in the entire Bible. This is after the first temple was constructed. He gives a very, very long speech dedicating the temple. What's amazing is that in this very, very long speech, 
He never mentioned sacrifices once in his description of the temple. Can you imagine that here's a whole dedication for the temple, and if the missionaries were correct, the most important part of the temple would be the sacrifices. And yet Solomon does not mention sacrifices, blood, once. It doesn't come up once. What a beautiful time for Solomon to repeat the missionary teaching that this temple is very important because without these sacrifices, you guys are going to be going to hell after your sins. Would it have been great for the Bible to say that from a Christian point of view? Get it out. And yet Solomon does not mention sacrifices once. What is the central part of the temple, by the way? The Holy of Holies. Right? Obviously, if the whole temple is holy, the Holy of Holies is a more central part of the temple. And the Holy of Holies was the repository of the of the Ten Commandments, of the tablets. So really, the, the temple is not so much a place of sacrifice. It's a place that symbolizes the presence of God. God says to the Jewish people that you will build me a sanctuary and I will dwell among you. What the sanctuary essentially was was a symbol of God's presence among the Jewish people. The ultimate symbol was the revelation of God at Mount Sinai. And we, we take that symbol, we put it into the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. If the sacrifices were the most central part of the temple, then Solomon would have mentioned it at least once. Here he says something very interesting. After this whole speech about the beauty of the temple, Solomon says in verse 46, if they sin against you, if they, the Jewish people, sin against you, God, because we know there is no one who does not sin, and you were angry with them and give them to an enemy, so they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. So now they don't have the temple. They're now living in Babylon. They're living who knows where in the world. The temple is destroyed. They're taken captive. What did the Jewish people do at this point if they sinned? Solomon continues. If they come to their senses in the land to which they have been taken captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and prayed to you toward their land, which you gave to their ancestors, toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all of their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of the captors so they may have compassion on them. So what will affect God's forgiveness of all our transgressions? He doesn't say when they go to Babylon or they go to North America they build another temple and bring sacrifices. He says when they are in that land far away they don't have access to the temple they repent of their sins they pray to you, God, and you will respond with mercy and forgiveness. This is the cornerstone of the Jewish biblical position. And we'll see this corroborated very clearly throughout the evening over and over again. It's not just hidden away in Solomon's speech here. The basic position of the Bible is that when we do wrong, when we turn away from God, the way we get forgiven is by turning back to God. Sacrifices, believe it or not, as we're going to see, were not in and of themselves sufficient to grant atonement. Not only were they not necessary, as we're going to see now, they were never sufficient in the first place. 
It was not possible in the times of the Bible to sin, bring a, bring a sacrifice, and automatically be forgiven by God. It didn't work like that, as we shall see. But here we see that it was not necessary. You were able to achieve atonement without sacrifices through simply turning to God, repenting of our sins, praying to God, and praying and begging for forgiveness. The Bible says over and over again, that is what works. In the book of Hosea, chapter 14, the prophet here is speaking to the ten northern tribes. You remember from last week, we spoke about the, the big split among the tribes in Israel, the ten tribes versus the two southern tribes. And when they, this war was going on, the temple was in the south. The two southern tribes had the temple. The ten northern tribes had no access to the temple. What do they do if they're in the north and they sin? So the prophet Hosea speaks to the people in the north and says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have fallen by your iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say to him, take away all our sins and receive us graciously, so we will render the calves of our lips. Where are our sacrifices? Our prayers become substitutes for the sacrifices that were brought in the temple. Psalm 141, we see the same concept. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 21. And hear the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. May you hear from your heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. Proverbs 15. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That's, by the way, one of the proofs that a sacrifice by itself does not work. The wicked person who doesn't stop sinning and just brings sacrifices, the Bible says that's an abomination. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. In the second book of Samuel, chapter 12, verse 13, we have the ending of a very famous story where David had committed an indiscretion by taking the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and sending him out to die in battle. And God sends the prophet Nathan to rebuke David. And Nathan tells David a parable and tells David about a rich prince who has plenty of flocks and plenty of possessions and he goes and he takes the one sheep that belonged to a poor farmer. And hearing this story, David says, that's horrible. That man, that prince, is a terrible, horrible person. He deserves to be punished. And Nathan says, you are that man. And then here in the, in the second book of Samuel, chapter 12, verse 13, David says to Nathan, after the story, I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses, he admits he sins. And Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Finished. No sacrifice, nothing. As soon as David repents, he's forgiven. And we see this reflected, for example, in the book of Psalms, chapter 32, verse 5, where David writes about this, this episode and says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David, by simply appealing to God and praying and confessing, receives atonement. The book of Proverbs, chapter 28, verse 13 says, No one who conceals his transgressions will prosper, but one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The principal idea in the Hebrew Bible 
is the idea of repentance, of tshuva, of, return, of repenting from sin. And we'll just speak about it briefly to show that really it's not counterintuitive. When, for example, a couple, a husband and wife, have a falling out, when one hurts or offends the other, how do they get back together? So obviously, the husband might send his wife flowers, but sending flowers by itself won't do anything, right? That can be seen as a very, very shallow gesture. What the husband needs to do, or what the wife needs to do, whatever the case is, is to come clean, to come clean, to admit they were wrong, to ask simply directly for forgiveness, to say that they're sorry, to admit they were wrong, and to resolve never to repeat that offense in the future, to change their behavior. If one of the parties offended the other or hurt the other by doing something and continuing to do it, then all the flowers in the world and all the boxes of candies in the world are irrelevant. So God says the same thing to us. When you as a Jewish people sin against me, bringing sacrifices is nice. It's part of the process. God says when there's a temple and you can afford it, you do bring a sacrifice in case of unintentional sin. But that's not where it's at. The sacrifice by itself, as the Bible said, is worthless. The sacrifice of an evil person, of a wicked person, is an abomination to God. Right? If you keep on doing the same thing, you keep on cheating on your, against your spouse, right? you're having affairs after affairs, all the flowers and candy is not going to be seen as very uh, significant. So the essential way of changing the relationship, of getting back on path, is by repenting. Admitting you're wrong, asking for forgiveness, and changing your behavior. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again. And that's why the Christian idea that without the shedding of blood, there's no way of getting back to God is absurd. Because the central way of getting back to God is simply getting back to God. If we were doing all the wrong things, we speak about in the Bible the derech hachayim, the path of life, the path to God. When you get off the path, right, that's what sinning is. We get off the path, we start doing all the wrong things, the way that we resolve that is by getting back on the path. That's called repentance. And intuitively, that's the only way that makes sense to receive forgiveness from our sins. Sacrifices, in and of itself, was never sufficient to receive atonement. So on top of the next page, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. Now this is important. You should read the entire chapter. This Jewish concept, again, is not something we dredge out in one verse in the book of Ezekiel. This is the entire chapter 18 of Ezekiel says this beautifully. We have a few verses here as illustration. But if the wicked turn from all their sins that they have committed and keep all my statutes and do what is lawful and right, they shall surely live, they shall not die. None of the transgression that they have committed shall be remembered against them. For the righteousness that they have done, they shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God, and not rather they should turn from their way and live? That's what God says over and over. If you turn back to me, God says, I will forgive you. Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 3. It may be that when the house of Judah hears all of the disasters that I intend to do to them, all of them may turn from their evil ways, so I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. That's the mechanism. They turn from their evil ways, God forgives them. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
Where do we see an example of this theory carried out in practice very clearly in the Hebrew Bible and with non-Jews? In the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah the prophet is sent to Nineveh. He tells them that in 40 days you people are going to meet your end. In 40 days Nineveh will be overturned, he says. And the people took this message very seriously. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the way, sitting in sackcloth by itself would also be meaningless. Just putting on sackcloth or just putting ashes on your forehead in itself is again a gesture, it's a symbol of something that must be going on inside of you. It doesn't stop there. Then he made a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, nor herd or flock, shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Again, fasting by itself would simply be a meaningless gesture if it wasn't accompanied by a complete change in lifestyle. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth. They shall cry mightily to God. Now it's getting down to business. They've got to cry to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. This is the essential part. Turning from all their evil. And if they turn from their evil, the fasting and the sackcloth and the ashes become external symbols of what's happening inside of them. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger and so that we do not perish. What happens? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. They get forgiven by repenting and returning to God. In Daniel chapter 4, the same thing is told to the king by Daniel. Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins with what? With believing in Jesus? No. Atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. Proverbs 16, verse 6. By faithfulness and loyalty, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one avoids evil. Isaiah chapter 1, a very famous passage in Isaiah. Come now, let us argue it out. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your, skin, though your sins are like scarlet, red as scarlet, they shall be white like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become white like wool. How? How will your sins turn from red to white? If you are willing and obedient, if you obey God, you will eat the good of the land. You've got to become obedient. The sins were by being disobedient. By the way, not one of the prophets, there isn't one place in any of the prophets where we're told that we must bring sacrifices to get right with God. We have many prophets in the Hebrew Bible. We have Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Hosea. Not one of them ever speaks about the importance of bringing sacrifices to get back to God. Again, if the Christian position were correct, that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness, why didn't any of the prophets tell the Jewish people, you guys are sinners, and if you want to get back to God, you better bring those sacrifices. You better have that blood. They don't mention it once. What the prophets do speak about is that the Jewish people overemphasized the efficacy of sacrifices. The mistake that the Jewish people made over and over again 
was in a very superficial kind of understanding of what sacrifices were. The Jewish people saw sacrifices as a lucky, as a charm, as a magic wand. You commit a sin, so you go to church on Sunday, you say a couple of Hail Marys, and you go back on Monday and steal and rob and cheat, and, you steal, and you're forgiven. That's the absurdity of formalizing repentance. You cannot formalize repentance. You can't go back to your spouse by sending flowers if you continue to have adulterous affairs. You cannot make God feel any better about completely sinning and, and completely going against everything God demands of us by sending God flowers, by sending blood on an altar. So the, the Jewish people made that mistake. They kept on thinking they could sin they bring a sacrifice, spritz the blood on the altar, and then everything's fine. And the prophets said over and over again, it's not fine. The sacrifice by itself does not work. It's not a magic wand. The book of Isaiah, chapter 1. Isaiah says to the Jewish people, starting in verse 11, speaking the name of God here, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Who needs all your sacrifices, God says? I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts I do not delight in the blood of bulls. But I thought in Christianity, God loves blood. That's the main thing. God says to you, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this from your hand? You trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile, God says. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moon and the Sabbath and the calling of convocation, I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. By the way, God doesn't say he hates his holidays. God doesn't hate Passover. He hates the way the Jews were keeping the holidays. He hated the way they were trivializing everything. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you, God says. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Now God tells them, how do you get back on the track? Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Please for the widow. That's the way we can get back to God. Not by formalizing our repentance. The book of Amos, chapter 5. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, God says. And the offerings of well-being of your fat animals I will not look upon. Rather, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what I want, God says. In Psalm 51, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For I have no delight in sacrifice, God says. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise these. The prophets were, by the way, not saying that we shouldn't bring sacrifices. They were saying when you bring sacrifices, it needs to be an external symbol of what's going on inside your life. It's got to reflect a real change in who you are. The book of Micah, chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? How do I come to God and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, have, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No! God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does God require of you? 
but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God tells us is the way to go. Proverbs 21, verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to God than sacrifices. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, for God says, I desire love and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The Christian argument, the Christian position which is that the only way that we can be forgiven for sins is when we bring a blood offering puts an incredible set of handcuffs on God. The Christian position would seem to say that God is powerless to forgive us unless we fulfill this precise formula. You mean God is not capable of forgiving us simply because God is merciful? God needs me to do anything for him to act? So the Bible says to us over and over and over again, Do you know what? God is merciful and he will often forgive us even though we turn our backs on him. It's true. What we're supposed to do, our requirement if we want to achieve atonement, is to repent, atone for our sins, pray, etc. But from God's perspective, God could say, these people, even though they really annoy me, and even though they really keep on messing up, I love them, I'm going to forgive them anyway. And God often says, and he forgives the Jewish people simply because he loves us and he realizes that we're just human. We're just human and he has mercy on us and he doesn't need for us to have to have blood spilled to forgive us. Psalm 78, verse 35. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer, but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not true to his covenant. Yet he being compassionate, forgave their iniquity anyway and did not destroy them. Often he restrained his anger and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not come again. God understands how fragile we are and how imperfect we are and God has mercy to forgive us regardless of whether we turn to him in many cases. Isaiah chapter 43. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Yet I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. God says you didn't bring me sacrifices. And yet I will forgive you simply because I do it for my own sake, God says. The book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 16. But they and our ancestors acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and determined to return to the slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Missionaries contend that Jesus died for the sins of mankind. And the missionary position is that Jesus was the once and final sacrifice for all sins. Once Jesus died on the cross, there are no more sacrifices to be brought. We see this in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. This is from the Greek Testament, Hebrews 10 verse 10. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that could never take away sins. In the old temple, the priest kept on bringing sacrifices over and over again. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since then he has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who were sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days of the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the Christian position is that once Jesus died on the cross, there are to be no future sacrifices. And this runs into a very, very serious problem. Because the Bible has many references, and we learned this before, that in the future, in the Messianic age, the temple will be rebuilt. We will have a third temple. We see this very clearly in Ezekiel chapter 37, in the passage we've seen previously. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them that shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. God is saying that he will rebuild the temple and it will last forever. And the book of Yechezkel, the book of Ezekiel, actually gives us the blueprints for how the third temple will be built. So here we have a clear passage, not a passage, we have chapters, entire chapters in the Bible telling us about the third temple. Look in chapter 44 of Ezekiel. On the day that he goes into the holy place, into the inner court to minister in the holy place, he shall offer his sin offering, says the Lord God. Now, why in the world will the priest here bring a sin offering when the third temple is rebuilt? According to Christianity, what will be the need for sin offerings when the third temple is rebuilt? Ezekiel 45. On that day, the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering, etc. So we have clear references in the Bible not only to the fact that the temple is going to be rebuilt, but there will be the offering of sin sacrifices in the future as well. From a Christian point of view, this is very, very difficult to understand. What does the Bible say about vicarious atonement? Does the Bible ever tell us that it's possible for an innocent person to die and by the death of that innocent person, other people will be forgiven? Is that a concept that the Bible speaks about clearly. Are there any references in the Bible that say that's exactly how things should work? That the innocent one dies and the guilty one goes free. So we have a few references in the Bible. In the book of Exodus, chapter 32, that's exactly what was proposed to Moses when God wanted to wipe out the Jewish people. I'm sorry, Moses proposes this. But now, if you will only forgive their sin... If not, blot me out of the book that you have written. Moses is prepared to die rather than have the Jewish people be wiped out. Who had sinned against God by building the golden calf? The Jewish people. God was furious at the Jewish people. They're the guilty ones. Moses says, no, take me instead. Let me go, let me die, and forgive the Jewish people. And God says to Moses, no. Whoever has sinned against me, he I will blot out of my book. Not the innocent one gets punished, the guilty one gets punished, God says. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, parents shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their parents. Only for their own crimes may persons be put to death. Ish becheto yumat. You die for your own sins. Ezekiel chapter 18. The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What do you mean 
that you use this expression concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What does this mean? That, that one person sins and the other person suffers. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sins, it will die. Not the innocent person. The New Testament says that what did Jesus do? The New Testament says in the book of Romans and other places that Jesus died to justify the wicked. That's the basis of Christianity, that Jesus died to justify the wicked. What does the Hebrew Bible say about this? In the book of Proverbs, chapter 17, verse 15, one who justifies the wicked and one who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. This is what God says about the idea of justifying the wicked through the death of the righteous. Now, I must just tell you in passing that in rabbinic Judaism, that in the Talmud, we have a concept called misas sadik mechaper, that the death of a righteous person can have an atoning effect on the world. This, by the way, is not found in the Bible. And I want to make that clear that the Christian argument claims to be based upon the Hebrew Bible, not upon the Babylonian Talmud. But we have a concept in the Talmud, in rabbinic Judaism, that the death of the righteous can affect atonement. We need to understand that it has nothing to do with the Christian concept that the Messiah dies as an atonement for the sins of the wicked. First of all, throughout the, the Talmud, there are many things that serve as an atonement for us. Simply going through some kind of a pain Right? If a person gets hurt, a person gets hurt, that pain can serve as an atonement for that person's sins. And the commentaries point out that when a righteous person dies, it's not that the death of the righteous person atones for our sins. It's that when the righteous person dies, we mourn, we pray, we fast, we feel a tremendous amount of sorrow. And that mourning that we do when the righteous person dies, that internal work is what affects our atonement. The idea that the death of the righteous can atone for sins is something in God's department. God is able to take that into consideration. No human being has the right to say, well, three great rabbis died this year. I don't have any more responsibilities in terms of atoning. That's a concept that we have no right to take into our hands and use as a way of avoiding our responsibilities. The Bible tells us in our department are our responsibilities. God says our responsibility is to repent for our sins. In God's sphere, there may be many things that mitigate against our punishment. In God's department, it may be that the death of the righteous people not just the Messiah, but any righteous person, can have an effect on God's judgment. But certainly, it's not a concept that allows us to say that once a righteous person dies, that's all we need for the atonement of our sins. It doesn't work like that. And one more concept. The missionary position is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Right? That's their position. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Where is this from in missionary theology? It's from Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. That's where they get it from. 
Let's analyze that for, a more, for one more minute. So the Christians mean to say that when you have the shedding of blood, there's forgiveness. Right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Does that mean that where there is the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness? Does that mean if I'm making a sandwich in the morning, take to work, and I cut my finger with a knife, and blood drips on the floor, all over my shoes, right? I can go, praise God, all my sins are forgiven because we just had the shedding of blood. Would any Christian say that that makes any sense? Would I be permitted tonight to go home and slaughter my cat? I don't have a cat, but would that be allowed? Again, the Bible says, from a Christian point of view, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So if I want to be forgiven, I have a very simple uh, way of atoning for my sins. I get some blood and I shed it. Right? The cat, my finger, you know. (laughs) Obviously not. Christians will not accept this. And Christians will say that uh, the Bible articulates how sacrifices are to be brought. You just can't do whatever you want. The Bible delineates the proper procedures for bringing sacrifices. And all Christians would agree to this. No Christian would say that you have a principle that when there's a shedding of blood, there's atonement. It doesn't work like that. You need to follow the rules of the Bible. So the problem Christians run into in this case is that their sacrifice broke all the rules of the Bible. If my cat being slaughtered does not affect atonement, or cutting my finger when making a sandwich doesn't affect atonement, we're going to see that for the very same reasons those are not effective, Jesus would not be effective as a sacrifice. A number of examples. The Bible says that a sacrifice must be brought and the blood shed on the temple's altar. Where do we see this from? We see it from the verse the missionaries quote. Therefore I have given you the blood upon the altar to atone for your sins. That's the one the missionaries are in love with. Leviticus 17.11 The life of the flesh is in the blood, therefore I have given it to you upon the altar. Not in your living room. So was the blood of Jesus shed on the altar in Jerusalem? There was a temple in the year 30. wasn't destroyed until 40 years later. His blood was not shed on the altar. Number two, who is allowed to bring a sacrifice? Can any Tom, Dick, or Harry bring a sacrifice and slaughter it and put its blood on the altar? No, it has to be brought by a priest. A priest does it, not Roman soldiers. Sacrifices had to be unblemished. When you brought an animal to the temple, it had to be an unblemished animal. No marks, no scars, no bruises, no broken bones. Jesus was very blemished. Before he was crucified, he was beaten up by the Romans. He had a crown of thorns put on his head. He was circumcised. In the New Testament books, Paul refers to circumcision as mutilation. Paul refers to circumcision as mutilation. Jesus, we know, was circumcised on the eighth day according to the New Testament. So he was mutilated. He was not unblemished. And finally, he had a spear thrust through his side by a Roman soldier. So Jesus would not fit the requirements of any of the biblical rules of sacrifices. The biblical sacrifices were burnt on the altar. I could go on and on and on. Now the missionary response to me is, Michael, you're nitpicking. You're so picky, you Jews. You're so focused on the details and the technical laws. He's a spiritual sacrifice. Don't get so caught up in the nitty-gritty of the different fine points. That's the missionary response. 
Let's look at the book of John, chapter 19, verse 36. The Gospel of John in the New Testament tells us how Jesus was crucified. And it tells us an amazing thing. Jesus was put up on the cross on what day of the week? On a Friday. He was put on the cross on a Friday. Normally, when you were crucified, the means of death was not loss of blood. You did not not die from a loss of blood because your hands and feet were pierced. You died because hanging there, you would not be able to support yourself, and ultimately your chest would crush your diaphragm, you were no longer able to breathe, and people died from asphyxiation. However, people had a way of prolonging their lives by propping themselves up on the cross. You would simply dig in with your feet, hold on real tight, prop yourself up, and you'd be able to breathe. So the Romans had a way of making sure that people were not able to do that, especially when they were crucified on Friday so they could be buried before Shabbat. The Romans would come around with a mallet and break their legs with a hammer. And by breaking their legs, the people couldn't prop themselves up and then they would pass away quickly to asphyxiation. And the Gospel of John says that the fact that the Roman soldiers did not break his legs was not a coincidence. He says in the book of John that this was a fulfillment of biblical law. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Quote, none of his bones shall be broken. So obviously, Christians are very concerned about Jesus fulfilling the nitty-gritty details of what the Bible says. They can't have it both ways. Either Jesus was there and had to fulfill all the rules of the Bible, or it wasn't so important. It was simply a spiritual sacrifice, and who cares about the rules? But if the rules weren't important, why does John make a big deal of the fact that his legs weren't broken, and that fulfilled Scripture? What's amazing is that John's application of Scripture here is one of the funniest things in the entire New Testament. Because where does this concept come from that none of his bones shall be broken? Is this in the chapter in Isaiah where Isaiah speaks about the death of the Messiah? And Isaiah speaks about the Messiah being crucified and yet none of his bones can be broken? Is that where John got this from? Where Isaiah predicts that the Messiah is going to be crucified and his legs can't be broken? There's no such passage in the Jewish Bible in Isaiah. It's from the book of Exodus chapter 12 where the Bible tells us when the Jews were about to leave Egypt they had to bring the the lamb, the Passover lamb. And when the Passover lamb was brought, let's look at what it says in chapter 12, verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance for the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. No non-Jew shall eat of it. Interestingly, no one that's uncircumcised can eat of it. How interesting that a non-Jewish world where the New Testament speaks out against circumcision, constantly against circumcision, has all these uncircumcised Gentiles aligning themselves with Jesus, who is the Passover lamb, where the Bible says no non-Jews who are uncircumcised can have anything to do with this Passover lamb. Peculiar. In any event, any slave who has been purchased may eat of it after he's been circumcised. No bound or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the animal outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. This is clearly a very, very out-of-context lifting of a law. Does it mean that Jesus had to be eaten in one place and Jesus couldn't be taken out of the house? So what's happening here is that John simply takes this one phrase completely out of context and says that Jesus fulfilled this law of the Bible that none of its legs shall be broken. 
By the way, if we were going to be the first Christians, I mean, if we were going to write the New Testament, what sacrifice would we turn Jesus into? The Passover sacrifice? Was the Passover sacrifice a sin offering? Did the, did the Jewish people bring this Passover lamb every year in Jerusalem as an atonement from sins? Yet, that's what Christians say in the book of John, in the Gospel of John. It says, here is Jesus, the lamb of the world, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, the Passover lamb. They make Jesus into the sacrifice of Passover. Yet, the Passover sacrifice had nothing to do with sins. It was brought in Egypt initially as a sign for what? that the Jews were going to slaughter this animal and put its blood on the doorposts so God would know in which house Jews lived so the angel of death won't kill the Jews. God couldn't figure out which home was Jewish and which wasn't Jewish. I'm sure God doesn't need to see the blood on the doorposts. The blood was there so the people going through this are going through a very important thing. The, The lambs, these lambs were the chief god of the Egyptians. This was April, the month of Ares. This was the zodiacal sign of Ares. Chief god of the Egyptians. And the Jews were told, take this god of Egypt and slaughter it. Just slaughter the god. First tie it up on your bed four days beforehand, which is very provocative in Egypt. And Egyptians say, what are you doing with the, the, you know, the, you know, these are our gods. And we're going to kill it in four days. And then they just slaughter the Egyptian gods and take its blood, put it on the doorpost. That's not for God's sake, it's for their sake. But it was a symbol that there was a Jewish home and who was spared from death? Not every Jew, because every Jew sinned and every Jew deserved to die unless they had this blood put on their doorpost. It was a sign that there were Jews there and only the firstborn son was spared. No other son was in danger of dying. So taking this symbol of the Passover lamb and turning it into a symbol for atonement from sin is really peculiar. Christians really should have made Jesus into the Yom Kippur offering. Right? On Yom Kippur, the Bible speaks about a goat that's sent out into the wilderness. And on that goat are all the sins of all the Jewish people. Right? There, it's, it, that's a really nice metaphor for Jesus. Let's look at an example of what kind of things Christians resort to to prove their point. In Genesis chapter 3, this is the very beginning of the Bible, it says in the Garden of Eden that the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Believe it or not, Christian missionaries tell us that this is proof that you need to have the shedding of blood for forgiveness. Now you need to have a great imagination to find it here, but the argument runs as follows. After they sinned and they realized that they were naked and they were unclothed, they put on these fig leaves. But God, it says, made garments of skins for them. Now, how did God make these garments of skin? So the Christian argument goes, well, must, God must have slaughtered an animal. So if he slaughtered an animal, there must have been blood that was spilt. And therefore, you see here that God must have offered sacrifices for Adam and Eve after the sin of the Garden of Eden. This is, this is, by the way, one of the most common arguments used by Christian missionaries. In any event, if the animals were killed, the text indicates that the animals were killed for the purpose of clothing. There's no indication here at all that the animal was killed as a sin offering for Adam and Eve. Secondly, it's interesting that if it was a sin offering for Adam and Eve, 
it was very ineffective because they're thrown out of the garden anyway. There didn't seem to be much of an atoning quality to it. But this is an example of how far missionaries are forced to reach because they do have no sources. There are no sources for the concept that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. The entire presentation I made tonight explaining the Jewish concept of atonement from sin was through repentance. So the Jewish premise is that if human beings stray from God and commit evil and do that which is horrible in the sight of the Lord, we are able to return to God through repentance, through turning from our evil ways, admitting we were wrong, praying to God, confessing our sins, and going back on the right path. That's the Jewish position. I try to demonstrate it tonight from the Bible. The Christian response to this is as follows. And you really need to understand the theoretical underpinnings of the Christian position. Christians would say, that's all good and fine if you were able to live properly. But Christians argue that once human beings were stained with the sin of Adam and Eve, we are intrinsically evil creatures, and we don't have the power to ever live properly. So the Christian argument is that human beings are by nature miserable sinners, and there's nothing that we could ever do to please God. We could never live up to God's standards. It's impossible for us to ever repent properly because we don't have the capability of repenting. So Christians would say, sure, this was very nice and fine if you had the ability to repent, but you don't because you could never live properly. It's impossible, Christians argue, it's impossible to ever be a righteous person. This is the Christian argument. And really, when you get down to it, it really is just about one of the main differences between Christianity and Judaism. In Judaism, we believe that it's possible to be righteous. It is possible. We have it within our power. Therefore, the Bible is God's instructions to us on how to be righteous, how to be good. And God says, I will hold you accountable to whether or not you're able to live properly. That's the Jewish position. We can be good. God teaches us how to be good, and he expects us to try and achieve that. Christianity says, you can't be good, it's impossible. Therefore, Christianity does not spend a lot of time teaching you how to be good. It says, you need to focus on the fact that you're a miserable sinner, just simply believe that Jesus died for your sins, and that's it. So this is a very interesting argument. Judaism says that you can be righteous, Christianity says you can't be righteous. Now, again, I can't prove tonight, I'm not interested in proving which one of these is correct. You might have your own sense about it intuitively. But what does the Bible say about it? Does the Bible say you can be righteous, or does the Bible say you can never be righteous? So all we'll be doing here is showing that the Christian position, based upon the New Testament, is different than the Jewish position based upon the Hebrew Bible. Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. And God said to Cain, Why are you wroth? Why are you angry? And why is your countenance full? And why are you so upset? This is after Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to God, and Cain's sacrifice was rejected, and Abel's sacrifice was accepted. And God says to Cain at this point, What are you so upset about? And he says to Cain, If you do well, if you do well, shall not 
that shall thou not be accepted, meaning if you do well, if you do good, you'll be accepted. And if you do not do well, if you do not do well, sin will lie at the door. Sin will tempt you and lie at your door. And unto you shall be his desire. Sin will be trying to tempt you. And you shall rule over him. You will be able to rule over sin. So here we see a very, very important passage. This happens right after the Garden of Eden story. Lest you think, Cain, that after Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, you're powerless over sin. The very first person after the Garden of Eden story, God says specifically, you have the power to rule over sin. You can be a righteous person. Where do we see this proven? In the very next story. Book of Genesis chapter 6 about Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just, righteous man and perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. So the Bible is telling us it's possible to be good and righteous and perfect. Number one example, Noah. Chapter 7 of Genesis. And the Lord said to Noah, Come you and your house into the ark, for you I have seen righteous before me in this generation. Clearly it's possible to be righteous. Throughout the Bible, and I, I can't emphasize how many times this happens, what I did in my Bible was simply to go through the Bible, and every single time it mentions the righteous and the wicked, I put an R next to it. And what you see in the Hebrew Bible, I only gave you two pages here, are hundreds of references to the fact that there are righteous people in the world and there are wicked people in the world. The Bible's message is, you'll be one of the righteous ones. So the Bible holds out for us the possibility of being, right, God says, I put before you today the blessing and the curse, life and death. God says, choose life. That's the constant message of the Bible is, you have two paths before you. You can be a good guy, you can be a low life. God says, be a good guy. You have the power, you have the choice, and you're going to be held responsible. And the Bible mentions many, many people who are righteous. Numbers chapter 32. None of the men that came out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Kalev, the son of Yephunah, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. Here is an example of two men who were completely righteous. They were able to follow God. How could Christians maintain that it's impossible to follow God completely? 1 Kings chapter 14. And God rent the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart, to do that only which was right in my eyes. The Bible testifies about King David that he followed God perfectly. 1 Kings chapter 15. Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that God commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. David messed up once in his life. And we saw for that sin that he messed up, he repented and God forgave him. But it's possible to follow God. 2 Kings chapter 23. Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits and the wizards and the images and the idols and all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem did Josiah put away. King Josiah was one of the righteous kings of Judah. That he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And like unto him, there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might according to all the law of Moses, neither after him there arose any like him. The Bible says Josiah was as righteous as they come. The Bible could have said that there weren't such people like this if the Christians are correct. 
Psalm 97. You that love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. There are the saints and there are the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. The entire book of Psalms, starting from Psalm number one, is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Throughout the Bible, the righteous and the wicked are contrasted. It's possible to be righteous. Proverbs 13. A righteous man hates lying, but a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. Righteousness keepeth him that is upright in the way, but wickedness overcomes the sinner. Who is King Solomon talking about here? Clearly there are people who are righteous in the world. There are people who are wicked. We, we know in the book of Job in the Bible. Who was Job a wicked man? The Bible says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and, he, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and issued evil. Again, the Bible speaks about a man who is righteous. Isaiah chapter 3, Say you to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Who is Isaiah supposed to be talking about? Finally, one of the most important passages from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. Very, very important passage. Does the Bible tell us that there are righteous people, that, that it's impossible for a righteous person to sin? The Bible never says that. The Bible assumes that if you're a human being, you will make mistakes. You will fall short. The Bible says that there isn't a righteous man in the world who only does good and never sins. So even righteous people sometimes make mistakes. What do they do? They repent after they make those mistakes. The Christian position is that unless you're perfect, you can't be righteous. Here's where we differ. The Christian position is that to be righteous, you have to be perfect. You can never do anything wrong ever. It's clearly both an absurd position and an anti-intuitive position. There's no such thing about of, of being perfect as a human being. Is there anyone in life that's a perfect pianist? You never reach perfection. You can always get better. Is there anyone in life who's the perfect wife or husband or child? You can never say, it's not like a simple test where you can score a hundred by getting the right answer. Life is very complex. There's no such thing as being perfect. Only God is perfect. So the Christian idea that you cannot be righteous until you're perfect is absurd. There are no such thing as perfect people. And that's what Ecclesiastes says here. You can be righteous and yet commit sins. It's possible. Because there isn't any righteous person in the world who never makes a mistake, the Bible says. But there are righteous people. Let's just look at one example and then we'll finish for tonight, of a missionary text that proves that it's impossible to be good. This is from Psalm 14. Let's look at verse 3. This is what missionaries will quote to prove that you can't be good. They all have gone astray. They are all like perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one. So the missionary will contend that here you see black and white, the psalmist is saying there isn't one good person in the world. So, first of all, right, if we only had this verse in the Bible, and that was it, if the Bible was one verse long, then you'd be able to read this verse and say, oh, I guess there isn't any good people in the world. But we just, first, we just read two sheets worth, and there were thousands more, where the Bible says there are good people. It names them, and it tells us about all groups. And as a matter of fact, look at this very psalm. In verse 5, 
there they shall be in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Not just an individual or two, there are generations of righteous people. So within this very psalm itself, you see that there are righteous people. So what does it mean in verse 3 where it says, they have all gone astray, they are all like perverse, there is no one who does good, no, not one. Could this be referring to every single human being in the world? Clearly not. Because the Bible has told us in many places there are righteous people. So when the Bible speaks about people that are wicked, it's speaking about those who are wicked. Look at the first verse in Psalm 14. Who is this chapter talking about? Not every person in the world. The fools. It's the fools who say in their hearts there is no God. They are corrupt. They, the fools, do abominable, abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. It's not talking about mankind as a whole here. It's talking about the wicked among mankind. Among those people, the Bible will tell us that they are wicked and they're not good. Jews for Judaism hopes that you have found this audio recording to be helpful and informative. Jews for Judaism is an international organization dedicated to countering the multi-million dollar efforts of Christian missionary groups that target Jews, the impact of destructive cults and Eastern religions, and the growing rate of intermarriage that is devastating the Jewish community. Jews for Judaism achieves its goals through one-on-one counseling services and educational programs and materials that connect Jewish people to the spiritual depth, beauty, and wisdom of Judaism. Please contact Jews for Judaism if we can help you. www.jewsforjudaism.ca Keeping Jews Jewish